tuning in to Bad Radical Radio, an interview series podcast about student of color activists, change makers, and thinkers within NYU and New York at large. I'm your host, Natalie Doggett. Welcome to the third episode of Bad Radical Radio. I'm glad you're here to join in on the conversation. Last week, I spoke with Dean Serenilio, assistant professor of social and cultural analysis at NYU and author of Hawaii Statehood. And this week, I have with me Zoe Yu Gilligan. And Joey is a creative based in Brooklyn, New York. She is also managing editor, editor of Crybaby Zine. And much of her writing is featured in the aforementioned Crybaby Zine. Sunstroke Journal, The Messy Heads, focuses on indigeneity, womanhood, and displacement. So before we begin our conversation, I would like for you to join me in acknowledging and honoring the occupied indigenous Lenape land on which we stand. And if you are currently outside of New York City, I encourage you to go to native-land.ca to learn more about the land on which you occupy. Stay tuned for our engaging conversation on the personal and political awareness versus activism and the community beyond the stuff. I'm oh. good. I'm a little tired, but I'm good. Okay. Life's good. <laughs> um, I was thinking we met over a little over a year ago at the Messy Heads nice. like meetup mm-hmm. thing in Brooklyn. So yeah, you mentioned to me at the Messy Heads party that you moved around a lot. Um, you lived in Canada, Philly. Mm-hmm. Um, so do your physical ne- connection to all of these places, um, experiencing firsthand what happens every day in those places. Did that influence how you think and write about displacement? I think, yeah, to a certain extent. Um, When I've written about displacement specifically within indigenous communities, um, that's not necessarily speaking from my perspective because I feel um, from my own personal standpoint and what I've been through, I feel more aligned with the diaspora conversation, Mm. whereas um, indigenous peoples, um, it's it's not so much diaspora because even if they're not, um, you know, on their lands, they're still on their lands, if mm. you kind of get what I'm saying. Um, for me, moving around, it was always just a result of my dad's job or um, I used to figure skate and do ballet. So I would move around um, to train for those things, to do competitions, to take that seriously. So um, my... For me, displacement, um, it's more of an intergenerational thing because Mm -hmm. my mother was the one who was displaced. Um, It wasn't me personally. I was just born and raised here always. My mother wasn't born here. Mm -hmm. So, um, In your most recent piece entitled uh, Maria Ressa? Maria Ressa? Yeah, Maria Ressa. Maria Ressa and the fight to defend press freedom. Um, You talk about the string of violence and murder against journalists. Uh, in Philippine uh, independent media outlet. So you should check it out, by the way, if you're listening. Um, what motivated you to focus the piece on Maria Ressa? So um, I'm part Filipina myself, and um, in my household, it's always been a known fact that the Philippines has a very, very corrupt government. Um, corruption first began when... Spanish people came and started bribing our tribal leaders and elders, saying, 
Um, if you tell your leader this, I'll give you this plot of land or I'll give you this amount of money, even though this money has no relevance within your system. But because we're going to implement our system now, you need money. So um, that so starting from the 1500s, from the very beginning of colonization of our islands, um, corruption has always been relevant and evident and that has persisted throughout the centuries and has just become more and more known and um, very unapologetic um, throughout the 20th century in the American period, post-American period. Um, we had um, a dictator, Ferdinand Marcos. He um, you know, committed some of the worst human crimes in the history of the Philippines. Um, so we do have a history of oppressing, suppressing, repressing, whichever pressing word you want to use of, um, of our journalists and our media because our journalists and media have always sought to seek out the truth, that which undermines our very democracy. But um, because of this corruption, they've pretty much bought up the media. They own it, they run it, they control it, and then that's how they run and control the country because that's how everyone is brainwashed. So I felt really motivated to write this piece because it, it's extremely alarming. I don't think it should just be alarming to Filipinos. I think it should be alarming to people worldwide because uh, for us who live in the West, who live in the United States, um, we have somewhat made room for these occurrences to happen worldwide. Um, besides the fact that, you know, we are the quote-unquote leaders of the free world, um, our technology, um, our social norms, and um, how we've handled things internally have become example for other countries to follow. For example, Hungary, um, their far-right leader, has pretty much bought up every single media outlet. Um, Turkey has the world record for imprisoning journalists. And in the Philippines, we've just we're just following all sweet. We're just following in this likelihood. And that is why I wrote the piece. It is very unnerving as a Filipina, as an American, as somebody who lives on earth, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that everybody should be very frustrated by that for writing a piece about a businessman who is corrupt and you deserve to go to prison for that. It's absolutely atrocious mm -hmm. yeah, for sure and going off of that i just wanted to ask when you when did you start writing and how did your writing evolve into what it is today the kind of topics that you choose to write about so i think um when i just started writing in general not something a specific kind of writing um, i started writing when i was seven or eight years old um, i had found this little book of poetry that my grandfather had written and i was just so wowed and amazed by what words what what led from a pencil on a piece of really crummy paper from the 1940s could still do today the kind of impact it had and I really kind of felt in love with the um, immortality I guess of writing then I, I came across this quote in elementary school by Maya Angelou and just to paraphrase it it pretty much says um, if you've uh, if you don't have a favorite book, go write your favorite book. And I, I loved a lot of books when I was younger, but I really didn't have one specific favorite book. I'm also really indecisive, but uh, I just like made it a fact when I was eight years old. I was like, 
I'm going to write my favorite book someday. That's going to be my goal. And then throughout middle school, I wrote short stories. I really, really loved writing in my diary. (laughs) Very much a confessional writer from the time I was young. Um, And then I think it was kind of when I got around to the end of middle school, beginning of high school. Um, I'd seen what Tavi Gevinson did with Rookie Magazine. And um, although that type of um, magazine, the teen girl in her bedroom, um, I totally love that. That definitely did speak to me at the time. Um, It wasn't necessarily what I was vying for. Um, I very much was like, I'm New Yorker magazine for teens, if there was ever a such thing. And so seeing what Tavi did with herself, made of herself, was really motivating. I was like, well, I'm... 13 turning 14 and I have a lot to say and I want to put it out there in the world and um, from that I started sending out submissions obviously to a lot of places that were like you're 14 we're not going to publish this and it was really disheartening to me even though I do realize later on it's not even so much about um, not even just about maturity or voice, but it's also about ugh, I'd have to get my parents to sign all these contracts because mm-hmm. I'm under the age of 18, right? So, um, of course, I didn't realize that at the time. So I was kind of like, screw it. Nobody wants to hear what I have to say. Um, I'm going to make my own outlet. So when I was 14, I had made my own webzine. It was called Written Citizen. Um, it pretty much just actually became a big friendship group for me. I mean, we did obviously publish a lot of things and it was really great it was a good way for me to practice writing um, practice kind of being in a leadership role um, helming uh, albeit small um, webzine and yeah actually some of my best friends to this day I met them through um, when I was like come write for my magazine we were just internet friends when we were 14 and now a lot of them are still my best friends to this day. So that's kind of how I got into writing. And then from then, it kind of spiraled into this whole people read my piece in this publication. And they were like, come write for me. And I'm really lucky that way that it kind of just spiraled and unfolded that way. Yeah, yeah. And when your internet friend that came to eventually write for a Written Citizen, did you meet them like on Twitter or on Instagram? or? So I met most of these friends through... Instagram and a little bit on Tumblr. I don't have a Tumblr anymore, but um, I did have one. (laughs) (laughs) I did have one when I was 14. I met a couple of them through there, and it was mostly just Instagram. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a good segue into my next question, which is about Instagram and basically like your your relationship with it. Um, Because I know, again, when we first met, I was really inspired by all the things that you were posting on your story. You just, you know, you post news, you post your opinion, and you just, um, you keep your followers updated and aware. Um, so I guess more recently also you spoke about the toxicity of social media and how you, obviously you don't want to identify with it so closely that it becomes who you are. So, yeah, so how did your relationship with Instagram as a platform for social awareness, like, evolve, and how did it continue to evolve? Because you still use it for... Right, so um, I I think, in general, I've always had a love-hate relationship with Instagram. 
um, before the whole I'm taking a social media break, social media cleanse kind of time that we're in right now, you know, back in like 2015 or something, I was just always deleting my Instagram, always during the winter. I'm not sure why, but it was always during the winter that I just found myself being like rolling my eyes like I need to give my eyes a break from mm-hmm. this and my mind. So, yeah, because I think to um, to a certain extent, I've always I've always enjoyed um, what I see on Instagram. But then again, just the rolling of the eyes. It's just so, a lot of it is so contrived and put on. It's kind of like somebody always being fake to your face, except you're going out of your way to seek it on a platform and then like it and follow it and thus give it money eventually if they have that kind of following. But then on the flip side, um, I do really love the good parts about Instagram, like everything else. There are a lot of good parts. For example, as I said earlier, um, I was able to make my own webzine that way. I've gotten a lot of creative opportunities. Um, I've made a lot of really great friends, and I've learned a lot from it because um, it's kind of people taking charge of their own narratives and sharing their opinions. And, yeah, it's not always necessarily um, a really stress-free space where opinions are shared. Um, Personally, I'm not the type to get in an Instagram fight. I don't at people. I don't go in comment sections. If somebody comes at me in my DM requests, I just decline that. If somebody says something on my Instagram post, I just report it or I block them. Um, if it's, you know, very much on the offense, I just, it's irrelevant to me. I don't know you. I'm not taking it personally. I'm not stressing it. Um, but people that do, do request my DMs, but try to have a dialogue or a conversation, I consider that more because it is thoughtful. But at the same time, you know, it's, it still is Instagram. I I still don't know you. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you're not going to compensate me for my time, I don't really see why it's my responsibility personally to um, engage in this so yeah I do definitely think it has its perks in terms of um, just getting the word out in general Mm. because uh, where else are people gonna read nobody does do a lot of people actually use the news app on their phone I'm not sure Mm -hmm. do a lot of people actually have CNN MSNBC apps you know not that I like this news outlet at all but even Fox like do people even have these apps on their phones I don't know do people Mostly watch TV news. I'm not sure. Personally, I'm a broke girl living in New York. I have no TV. (laughs) So um, I kind of just rely on going on websites or um, people screenshotting headlines on their Instagram stories that I can go look at later. So it is a very good way um, to spread word of mouth. But for anything else, I just I don't think people should be taking Instagram Um, that personally I just see it as a tool Mm. and nothing else it's kind of business in that sense whether you make money from it or not you just can't get personal with it like that it's just another tool it's just another app on your phone right right right. and I definitely again looking at it as a tool and not Mm -hmm. necessarily as a lifestyle like um, I was thinking a lot about how people were talking about internet activism Mm. and I was thinking well it's not really activism because you're not physically involving yourself in the way someone in a grassroots organization would, even this podcast. I don't consider this to be activism. I consider this to just be spreading awareness, rather. 
Um, and something that's kind of like support for activism. It's not necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, um, seizing the means of production or anything, but it definitely is support in the sense that um, it kind of helps people get there mentally. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I, mm-hmm. That sounds kind of rude, maybe. <laughs> no, no, no. But um, just uh, in general, a lot of people aren't there yet. Right, by just giving them the knowledge and, again, the tool that they need in Mm -hmm. order to get there, to get Mm -hmm. to that place. But Um, internet activism is is kind of weird to me, in a sense, mm -hmm. because, like you said, a lot of people, they just post screenshots on their stories, which I do um, myself, and then they call that activism. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if just posting a screenshot would be considered activism, you know, I, I would prefer it if people were posting screenshots of receipts for donating to an organization and then calling themselves an activist. Again, it's not necessarily the kind of grassroots work that um, a lot of people would consider activism. But, you know, it's very good to share these things, but it's also good to, you know, put your money where your mouth is, quite mm-hmm. frankly. And I feel like it's just become another clickbait trendy factor for people um just something to put in their instagram bio something to seem cool you know um animal vegan activist or um you know just something like that it's just a, a sensational factor thing just to attract people to them like look i have opinions right. look i do this it's really just like a looking kind of phenomenon they just want people to to look at them and to profit off of people mm-hmm. looking at them I find because um, some of the best activists I've met, they're not even on Instagram because, quite mm-hmm. frankly, the hardcore activists, they're the ones that are like, Instagram is owned by Facebook. And who runs Facebook? Mm-hmm. And everybody's listening in. Um, these algorithms are tailored based on what um, the Messenger app by way of your microphone feature on your phone is doing, you know? So um, I just, I don't think Instagram is necessarily a good way to gauge somebody's activism or a good way to put on your activism resume that ooh I post things on my Instagram stories I'm an activism activist right and I don't want to be a hater to anybody I don't want to discourage anybody from doing that because that is a really good start to getting involved is posting those screenshots but then I think it goes beyond that in the sense that you should be attending the things that you're posting about for example Um, you should be donating money to the things that you post about nobody's asking you to you know cut off your left foot for it Mm -hmm. you know just like five dollars can go a long way if everybody donates five dollars Courtney to say you know if everybody donates this we'll have all this money but you know there's no lie with that Mm. right so I think it's a it's a really good start it's a good way to get into things especially with um younger people now you know things aren't things aren't really emphasized by um posters on the streets or like on school boards it's not a word of mouth isn't spread the way it used to be before it's not so much an um in-person organic way of joining these kinds of things anymore it is very much um about finding out about it digitally i mean for me that's how i first got into these things i mean i'm lucky though that some of the orgs i've got into happen to be that i met these people by chance in person but um just in general for a lot of my um views of the world and the way in which things work it definitely has been a result of people putting their two cents worth in on the internet so again no hate but definitely can always do more right yeah for sure and you're involved with um decolonizing place i know you 
been like a part of the um Columbus Day, anti Columbus Day uh museum tour. Um so yeah, can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that was actually kind of um that was unintentional. I wasn't actually mm-hmm. involved with them prior to that and I wasn't actually like in the agenda to speak there. Um I'm actually a member of Anakbay in New York. It's a Filipino youth grassroots organization um, that seeks to fight for a just and corrupt free democracy um, in the Philippines with a socialist perspective. Mm. And so I had gone to the um, anti-Columbus Day March walking tour at the American Museum of Natural History, boo, um, that Decolonize This Place was organizing. And I'd gone there with a couple of friends And I really, really, really was moved by everybody that spoke. But I also was a bit like, there's nobody from any part of the Pacific that is speaking here. And I feel as though, um, as like one of the only people in here. Um, Although I later found out that there was, I think you actually interviewed him in your last podcast episode, the professor here. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure he spoke there too. Mm -hmm. Um, But before that, I was very much like, These people need to know because um, Christopher Columbus, he's just a um, a peer of Magellan who personally colonized um, the Mariana. So that's Guam, otherwise known as Guam, um, Palau, and what we now know is the archipelago of the Philippines. It wasn't known as that prior to colonization. We were not united in that sense. Um, Magellan was just another colleague of Christopher Columbus who followed all suite of him. So I felt very much that um, this needed to be put out there and people needed to know that. And especially in discussions about decolonization, um, I just don't think that you can only limit it to a solely American perspective. Um, And then, especially here in New York, limit it only to the major groups that exist here because living in New York, which is like a major capital in the world, um, you know, we have to do better than that. And there are a lot of other groups that do live here in New York. You know, they might not be in the millions like other groups are, Mm -hmm. but, you know, we still have to serve the people. We still have to be good community members and neighbors. So I felt very much that I had to go up there and just ask people, can you please point to me where the Philippines is on the map, where mm-hmm. Palau is, where Guahan is, um, where the Marshall Islands are, where the Caroline Islands are. And, you know, a lot of people just kind of sat there. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not trying to hate. It's not their fault. You know, t- I'm pretty sure most teachers <laughs> don't could not even point that out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of w- why I felt the need to... Um, tell the amazing people at Decolonize This Place, I was like, I need to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, need, I need to get out there and put this out there so that people do not forget about us in the Pacific because especially um, in this whole um, climate change epidemic mm-hmm. that's um, happening, uh, for us that live in the Pacific, we're going to be the first affected by it. Um, Fiji is already seeing extreme changes in their Um, landscape and even like lifestyle choices that they now have to make as a result of the changing landscape and it's just really frustrating that 
people love to co-opt the climate change conversation to be like, yeah, this is a this is a hip cool thing. Like I don't I don't want the world to explode. I don't want to die by 2050. Well, it's already happening now um, for a lot of people, and it is just a bit frustrating. I said this at the um, when I spoke at Decolonize This Place. I said. You know, everybody has their pictures from their holiday in Fiji or on Hawaii or in Tahiti now. So it doesn't matter. They already got their holiday pictures. If it's gone, snap. That's really unfortunate. But at least I have my Instagram post that I already mm. went on holiday there. And there was just another really concerning thing for me is that we all know these places for holiday and nothing else. It's right. really dehumanizing and limiting and they seem to forget that entire tribes, entire cultures that have existed there for thousands of years are literally on the verge of extinction as a result of climate change and other poor social policies that are made influenced by Western powers. Um, so yeah, that was one of the reasons why I kind of felt the need to speak at Decolonize This Place, just to remind people about us. Right, right. And back to what you said about the Maya Angelou quote of just creating your own story if you don't, if it's not already out there. Mm-hmm. I feel like hearing you speak about that, that's basically what you did. You didn't mm-hmm. hear anybody else in the audience speaking from your perspective, so you did what you had to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I did. I did. Because <laughs> I have a lot of conversations with my friends about secondary education like, as students of color because mm-hmm. then that adds another layer to the issue of, you know, high tuition costs and student debt. Um, and accessibility, yeah. quite frankly. Right. Is that, do you want to speak a little bit on accessibility? If you have So, to? yeah, I mean, um, as an mixed race Asian American Pacific Islander woman um, I kind of laugh when everybody uh, talks about this affirmative action and how it helps me Um, affirmative action has not helped me Um, it's worked against me there are um, there are a group of Asians right now that are taking Harvard to court because um, they it's kind of like a reverse discrimination in the sense that they have a much much higher standards for Asian applicants than they do for white applicants or applicants of another ethnic background. Um, Like, say, just on the scale of 1 to 10, um, an Asian applicant has to score like a 9.85, and then a white applicant can just score like a 6.75, and then they'll accept both. So um, affirmative action has definitely not helped me, and there are a lot of resources within uh, post-secondary education and academia that I just really feel like have not been made available to me um, because I I do have my own personal struggles and issues but you know sometimes I feel like these institutions are kind of like unless you performed heart surgery and won the Olympics and run your own dog shelter then no you can't have two dollars for your lunch Mm -hmm. you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so there's um, there's a lot of issues of accessibility because it's very selective. Again, the, the media has this whole, oh, affirmative action. That's what gets all the black kids and the Latinx kids and the Asian kids into college when over 50% of student populations at fancy colleges and other schools um, are still white, are still very mediocre white people. Mm-hmm. Um, you really cannot base a student's um, potential on their 10th grade math score, quite mm. frankly. Um, so yeah, I feel like there's just really not a lot of things accessible 
to students of color and then even if they are within an institution there's not a lot of resources and community and again it really does depend on where you go to school Mm -hmm. um if you go to school for example somewhere like new york um luckily there isn't um so much of an issue for visibility there definitely are very very um constitutionally corrupt things happening in these schools but it is a lot easier to you know make friends and have community for example Mm -hmm. um but you know for a lot of students in other schools across the country it's really not the same and it all kind of starts from obviously grade school education for example um pacific islanders have the highest illiteracy rates in the united states Mm -hmm. and there are many many parts of islands in Hawaii and places on Guahan as well um, where people don't even graduate high school. Um, If it makes sense, they're too poor to go to high school. If somebody is too poor to finish grade school, how are they ever going to afford college? How will college ever accept them with the kind of educational background that they've had? So it is really like, again, a systemic issue that goes back to when you first enter the American education system from the time you're, what, four or five years old or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's just the alarming thing is, is that it follows you everywhere. People say, college, it's your time to, you know, move past those things, beyond those things. It's, um, it's higher learning. There's a lot more available. And there is. Again, I don't want to be a hater. There's, um, there are a lot of good resources and opportunities for students of color, um, queer students, um, to access, but it's just not good enough. That's the point. And so thank you so much. Thank you for, for having me. Yeah, thank you. Oh, and I just wanted to ask, do you have any upcoming projects, anything you're involved in? So right now, ooh, I'm like really tight on deadlines, actually. Um, mm-hmm. The magazine that I'm managing editor for, Crybaby Zine, um, our next upcoming print issue is coming out in June. I'm doing the cover story for it. And then I have another piece for it. So the theme is obsession or fan culture. So I'm interviewing a musician, can't say who yet, um, (laughs) for the cover. And then my other piece that I'm writing for it is called In Defense of Disco. Because, um, again, shout out to Professor Jaina Brown. Um, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of disco, and honestly, one of the only reasons why disco went quote-unquote out, quote-unquote, in the United States is because of homophobia, misogyny, and racism, Mm -hmm. and I'll leave it there so you can pick up the issue in June to read everything I gotta say about disco and the musician I'm interviewing. This sounds really excited. I'm excited to read it now. But um, yeah, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that concludes the third episode of Bad Radical Radio. I hope you gain new knowledge from our conversation and you feel encouraged to put that knowledge to work in your own practice. Um, Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Natalie Doggett.